Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Senator Bernie Sanders came to How To Academy last week following a short talk about his new book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. He was joined in conversation by comedian Frankie Boyle. Here's the event in its entirety. Thank you all very much for coming out tonight. And it's going to be a lot of fun having Frankie Boyle here as well. I'll be the comedian. He'll be the straight guy. We'll see what happens. Uh, As I think all of you know, uh, I've recently written a book entitled It's Okay to Be Angry at Capitalism. And... Uh, if I must say so myself, in all modesty, it's a good book. <laughs> because it raises questions and demands answers to issues that in our society we don't discuss very much. And in the book I talk about real politics, which is what I mean by real politics, as opposed to establishment politics. And I'm much more familiar, obviously, with what goes on in the U.S. uh, as opposed to what goes on here. But in the U.S., what establishment politics is about is is looking at political life as kind of entertainment. It is a lot of political gossip. It is polling. It is 30-second advertising. It is, if I say something dumb tonight, it goes all over the place. Real politics is very different. Real politics, I think, deals with a couple of factors. Number one, maybe the most important, is what is going on in the lives of the vast majority of our people who are working class people? What is the reality of life for those people? And you would think that that's an obvious issue that that people would be discussing, but you would be surprised at how little we do that. So that's the first issue. What's going on? Second issue is, how did we get to where we are today? What did we learn from that? And the third issue, which is also extremely important, and we don't discuss very much, is where do we want to go? You can't be in politics if you don't have a vision of what the future is. And that's not just the political battle of today or tomorrow. Where do you want to be in 10 or 20 years? What kind of society do you want to live in? And with the explosion of artificial intelligence and technology transforming society, who's going to benefit from those technological changes? If somebody develops a machine, or if you use robotics, which can make a worker far more productive, is that worker going to see an increase in his pay because he or she is more productive? Will the work week go down because he or she is more productive? Or will that worker simply be chucked out on the street, get on the unemployment line while the benefits go to the people who own that technology? Now, in terms of what's going on in the United States, let me tell you what many of you don't know. When we look at the lives of ordinary people, there is an extraordinary amount of pain in America. We start off with the reality that over 60% of Americans, 
and America is the richest country in the history of the world. But even within that reality, over 60% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Is that an expression that you guys are familiar with? All right. And what it means, and I grew up in a family that lived paycheck to paycheck. What it means is you go to work, you often work hard, and God knows in the pandemic, in my country and in your country as well, tens and tens of thousands of working people, whether they're nurses, whether they're grocery store workers, whether they're bus drivers, whatever they may be, died going to work. Died. But people go to work, and at the end of the week, they got nothing. They can pay off their housing, they pay off their rent, pay off you know, the food that they buy, their car, their car needs, etc. And if in the midst of that week, the car breaks down, if in the midst of that week, you know, there is a problem with your house, if in the midst of that week your rent goes up, you are suddenly thrown into economic turmoil. Your life is destroyed. What am I going to do? Where do I get the money? And in my country, unlike yours, often that is related to health care. Because somebody gets sick in America, a working class person, they go deeply in debt. So you have over 60% of the American people living paycheck to paycheck. Meanwhile, while that goes on, we have more income and wealth inequality in America today than has ever, ever been the case. We don't talk about it much. Corporate media doesn't talk about it. But that is the reality. What does that mean? It means, amazingly, three people on top own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. That is an obscene level of income and wealth inequality. It means that the top 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 92%. When I was a kid growing up, you know, bosses, CEOs always made more money than workers. Nothing new about that. But the gap between CEO pay 40, 50 years ago was 30 to 1, 40 to 1. Boss made 40 times more than the worker. Today, that gap is 400 to 1. CEOs now make 400 times more than their workers. People perceive, correctly so, that in America people are angry. They are angry. And that's what this book is about. They have a right to be angry. In the last 50 years, now think about all of the technological changes that have taken place over the last 50 years. And all the increase in worker productivity. And yet, now, the average America, American's weekly earnings adjusted for inflation are actually lower than they were 50 years ago. And in America today, you have many middle-class and working-class families who are really in despair because they worry that their kids are going to have a lower standard of living than they have. So for those families, things are going back. They're moving in the wrong direction. According to a study done by Rand Corporation, which is by no means a progressive organization, 
They calculated that roughly over the last 50 years, there has been a massive transfer of wealth that has gone from the bottom 90% to the top 1% to the tune of $50 trillion. People on top right now in America and many parts of the world have never, ever had it so good. During COVID, when people were dying, when people lost their jobs, the billionaire class saw a $2 trillion increase in their wealth and corporate profits soared. So the first point I want to make is when you look at America today, you have a nation where a lot of people are struggling. Our child care system is in complete disarray. You know how much it costs to put a kid in child care in my state? It costs about $15,000 a year. In Washington, D.C., it costs about $30,000 a year. Now, how do you pay for that if you're making $50,000 or $60,000? You can't do it. In America, we do not have a national health care program, and that means that 85 million Americans are uninsured or underinsured. You may not even know what the phrase underinsured means. What it means is that he can have insurance, but the insurance does not kick in until after he pays ten dollars or $15,000 out of his own pocket. And that means that people don't go to the doctor if they don't have a lot of money because they can't cough up that out-of-pocket expense. Young people, by the hundreds of thousands, cannot afford to go to college. It's too expensive. And those who do go to college, in many cases, come out of school deeply in debt. You want to be a doctor in America? You want to be a nurse? If you want to be a doctor in America, it is not unusual for you to come out hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Talk to nurses all the time. Come out of nursing school, $50,000, $70,000 in debt. So bottom line in America today is we have a system, an economy, which is doing just great for the people on top. For the middle class and working class, the system is in decline. And this is an issue that has to be talked about, has to be debated. Now, to my mind, the great crisis that we face is the unprecedented level of corporate greed that we are seeing. Rich have always been there to get rich. But right now, you have, in America, more concentration of ownership than has ever been the case. And that means that in sector after sector, whether it is agriculture, whether it's transportation, whether it is Wall Street, whether it is media, we are seeing fewer and fewer large conglomerates control that sector, less competition. And one of the reasons why inflation is as high, I don't know if you're talking about it here in the UK, but one of the reasons has to do with the excessive corporate profits that we are seeing. It's not just the war in Ukraine. It's not just the breakdown in supply chains. These large corporations have taken advantage of the chaos of the war and the breakdown in supply chain, raised prices off the charts, and are enjoying record-breaking profits. ExxonMobil, for example, made $200 billion in profits last year while Americans paid very high gas prices. 
So if that is the reality, and if that has everything to do with corporate greed, and if it has everything to do in America with the very wealthy having significant political power, is America a democracy? Yeah, kind of. What does that mean? Do I have the right to vote? Yeah, you have the right to vote in most cases. Although there are people working very hard to make it difficult for people to vote. But people have the right to vote. But what the Supreme Court of the United States did a number of years ago, they did something rather remarkable. In a Supreme Court decision called Citizens United, what they said is that billionaires have the unlimited rights to contribute as much money as they want into the political process. In other words, what the Supreme Court says, what freedom is about, if he's a multi-billionaire, hey, don't take away his freedom. He wants to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a campaign to elect people he likes or defeat other people. That is his constitutional right. He wants to destroy American democracy. That's his freedom to do. And the result of that is you have both political parties now very heavily dependent on big money, which is why a lot of the issues of importance to working people do not get dealt with because you cannot antagonize the people who contribute to campaigns. So, having said that, where do we go? Where do we go from here? And the first thing to do is not to believe what you see on the TV. Go into your own hearts. What kind of society do we want to see? And, and you in here in, in the UK, you have made some enormous accomplishments, by the way, that you should be very proud of. Now, I have worked very hard on the issue of health care for many years, because in the United States, we have a healthcare system which is totally dysfunctional. The function of the American healthcare system is not to provide quality care to all people as a human right, which is what should be the case. The function of the American healthcare system is to make insurance companies as profitable as they can be. So the reality is, We've got 85 million uninsured, no insurance, or underinsured. Insurance, company makes, insurance companies make tens of billions of dollars every year. Now, I am aware that the NHS is having problems. And you've got to deal with those problems. But don't let anybody tell you that the changes you need are to privatize the system or move to the American way. And by the way, again, great human achievements are often not recognized by the establishment. This country deserves enormous praise and respect for in 1948, way back when, having established health care as a human right. That is no small thing. And in many ways, you led the world to saying, you know what? Doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor. If you get sick, you have a right to go to the doctor, you have a right to go to the hospital, and not have to worry about the bill. That's a big deal, and you guys led the way on that. And when we talk about a society of the future, it is clear to me 
that education not only is important for economic reasons, you can't have a strong economy in this day and age if you don't have a well-educated workforce. But more than that, education and the right to learn is inherently what makes us human beings. That's part of being human. And clearly, to my mind, what we have got to do is make sure that we have strong public educational systems free of charge to all, from childcare all the way through graduate school. That is a human right, and we have got to fight to make sure that that takes place. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook and audio. And in terms of work, this is an issue we spend a little bit of time in the book on, because we don't talk about it much as a society. The truth is, in America, and I suspect here in the UK, there are millions of people who go to work every single day for one reason. They need the paycheck to take care of their family. All right, that's the reality. It's time to rethink the nature of work. It's time to rethink whether workers in the US, UK, and elsewhere in the world have to be simply cogs in a machine, walking to work, having no power over the job, being told what to do, what they can do, what they can't do, by their boss. In Vermont, we have had some success in moving to worker ownership of the jobs that people do. And if you walk into one of those companies, you can see the difference. It's as clear as the nose on your face about how people feel about the work they're doing. They're proud of the work they're doing. They have ideas because their ideas are listened to because they are part owners of the system. They elect their own bosses. They're not doing a good job, they get rid of them. They have power. And what our book is about, what the book is about, is understanding that when we talk about human rights, we are talking about economic rights as well. And one of those rights is not only a decent job at decent pay, it is the right of workers to have a say, to have input into the work that they do. 
Now let me conclude, and, and uh, we'll bring, bring on Frankie in a second. But what I want to tell you is, again, this is something that the media doesn't talk about and most politicians don't, is that right now we are in the midst of a very vicious class war. That's what it is. And the people on top are winning that war. The very rich are getting richer, and all over the world, working people are struggling. And what we are trying to do in the United States, with some success, not as much as I would like, but with some success, is to build a grassroots political movement, which is multiracial, which is multi-generational, which brings together workers who are black and whites and Latino and Native American and Asian American, people who are gay, people who are straight, around an agenda that speaks for all working people. Now, sometimes people call me fringe extreme. I've been called worse. It doesn't bother me personally. <laughs> but the ideas that we are fighting for, raising the minimum wage to a living wage, making sure our public colleges and universities are tuition-free, creating millions of good-paying jobs, taking on the fossil fuel industry as we transform our energy systems away from oil and coal into wind and solar and other sustainable energies, making sure that health care is always a human right available to all, making sure that people can afford the housing in which they live. These are not radical and extreme ideas. What is radical and extreme is giving tax breaks to billionaires. That's radical and extreme. What is even more radical and extreme is ignoring the existential threat of climate change. All right? And what this book tries to do also, what the book tries to do, is get us to think about issues sometimes in a moral sense. For example, some guy goes out and robs a store tonight, gets caught. Everybody agrees this is a criminal act. He's going to be punished. Fine. What about the CEO of a major oil company who 60 years ago was told by the scientists at that oil company, ExxonMobil and elsewhere, were told, point blank, that carbon emissions were going to be destructive to this planet. All right? They were told that. You know, it's one thing when somebody doesn't know something, they make a mistake, they do it. That's forgivable. But what happens when they were told that the product that they are producing is going to be enormously destructive for billions of people? And you know what they did when they got that information? They lied. They set up phony organizations to say, oh, well, we don't know, climate change, maybe, maybe not, we're working on it, not such a serious problem. They lied. So a kid who goes out and robs a store is a criminal. What do we call a CEO of an oil company who lies and ends up causing trillions of dollars in destruction and the loss of God knows how many lives? That is criminal activity, and it has to be recognized.
So just because somebody wears a nice three-piece suit, you know, contributes money to the local art museum, gives some money to charity, that doesn't make him or her a nice person. I'll give you another example, maybe more relevant in the U.S. than the U.K. In the U.S., we pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. In some cases, ten times more than what you pay. So you have executives in the pharmaceutical industry sitting around, and in America they can raise their prices any way they want. Simply, there is no government control. We're moving a little bit in that direction, but right now there is none. I took a trip a couple of years ago from Detroit, Michigan, in the Midwest of our country, into Windsor, Ontario. It was about a 45-minute drive. And people on the bus with me were diabetics. Diabetes is a very serious problem in the United States. Took a busload of people into Canada, and they bought the same exact insulin products in Canada that they were using in the U.S. for one-tenth of the price. Okay, one-tenth of the price. Now, what do we define? What do we call a CEO of a pharmaceutical industry who knowingly raises prices to a level that a lot of people cannot afford? And if those people cannot afford that medicine, they will die. So somebody says, if you raise prices like that, you're going to make a lot of money. People can't afford it. They're going to die. Well, business is business. And you take that to the extreme. Right now, with this terrible pandemic, COVID pandemic, we are dealing with, we have the vaccine. It has been done in the United States. It was done, by the way, with a lot of federal government money, with a company called Moderna. So we have a vaccine that can keep people from getting very sick or dying. And yet, those companies refuse to make that vaccine available, or the information about that vaccine, how to create that vaccine available to the world. What does that mean? It means that a lot of people will die and suffer because somebody says, I got a product here, and my job is to make as much money as I can. And if you're in a poor country and you can't afford that product, tough luck. Is that morally acceptable? I don't think so. So there's a lot of thinking that we have got to do as we move forward as a planet. And I think at the heart of it, we need to create governments that are designed to work for all people, not just the few. We need to bring the working class together to take on the extraordinary power of the billionaire class. Nelson Mandela, and I know you're all familiar with Mandela, he said something that was very profound. And I'm paraphrasing him, probably got it a little bit wrong, but he said something like, it always seems impossible until it is done. Always seems impossible until it is done. What does that mean? It means that the task seems very difficult. The task seemed very difficult for women's rights, for gay rights, for the rights of African Americans in the United States until it is done. When it's done, when you have success, people say, well, no big deal. Of course, women shouldn't be second-class citizens. Of course, gay people should have the right to love whoever they want. What's the problem? Yeah, well, it was an enormous problem on all of these issues. People fought and died to change consciousness on them. So I end my initial remarks by saying, despair is not an option. We can bring about the changes that our countries and that this planet need 
if we are prepared to come together and prepared to take on very powerful special interests. Thank you very much. That was great, Senator. Thank you. And, and if I could say something, I'm sure the audience would want to extend this as well. Thanks for over the last decade or so giving us all some hope. Yeah. We're British people. We don't have a lot of hope, naturally. It's good to be able to import some. <laughs> we... I, I think what's, what's particularly inspiring about you over the years is that you're able to talk about class in a very simple way. I, d I don't know if you'd agree with this summation, but you seem to talk about class in terms of the inequality it creates uh, and the injustice it creates. And your remedy for that is power. You're not a let's start a petition kind of a guy. You think, how do we get power and how do we change this? Is that fair? Absolutely. Look, the ruling class that controls politics, the ruling class that controls the media, the ruling class that has the power wants to tell you power is not important. Not important for you because they have it. So the issue is, is precisely that. We have the potential, and I think I want to reiterate this over and over again. We have the potential to do extraordinary things. This is the year 2023. We're not in 1400s. We have technology out there that can do so much to improve lives for people in our countries and all over the world. But we can't let those people on top who have more wealth than they can spend in a million lifetimes. You know, in the book, we have a chapter, Frankie. It says, you know, Let's end billionaires. We don't need any more billionaires. And I get criticized, you know, oh, you're taking on, you're hurting these poor billionaires. Oh, my God. How cruel can you be? You know, they work so hard. They're so innovative. You're taking away their money. Look, here's the reality. If you work hard, you start a new business, you create some things, make money. No one objects to that. But do you really need Billions and billions of dollars. How much money can you possibly spend? How many homes can you own? How many islands, jet planes, yachts can you own? So I think enough is enough. We don't need in my country three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of society. That is obscene. And now they won't tell you that it's obscene. We're not supposed to think it's obscene. But it is obscene, and we've got to change it. Well, a big problem, isn't it, is that a lot of the media is owned by billionaires and corporate interests, and yep. they control the messages. Yes, exactly. That. I mean, what do we do about that? Well, that's a real issue. I mean, I have a chapter in the book uh, on media, corporate media, and this is what I say, and I, I started off talking about it, that establishment politics is, you know, the personality of the candidate, who do you want to have a beer with, uh, is Bernie Sanders' hair messed up? Uh, uh, polling, there's a poll that came out that this and that, or, uh, you know, some dumb things somebody says. I write in the book that I've been in politics for a long time, and I've done literally hundreds and hundreds of TV, radio interviews, and nobody has ever asked me, nobody, 
has ever asked me, Bernie, do you think it's appropriate that three people own more wealth than the bottom half of American society? Nobody has asked me. No one has ever asked me in our country, I don't know how many of you know this, we are spending more than twice as much per person on health care as you do. Do you all know that? In the United States, we spend $13,000 for every man, woman, and child. It's an astronomical sum of money. We should have by far the best health care system in the world. We don't. No one has ever asked me, how come you're spending so much, we're spending so much money and so many people are uninsured or underinsured? Nobody has ever asked me as to whether or not I think it is criminal that CEOs in the fossil fuel industry lied about climate change. So there are issues that we're not allowed to talk, talk about. And corporate media directs, as you indicate, the discussion of what we think we should be able to talk about. Very serious problem. And how you deal with that, well, we can talk about it. I think the social media, the internet, obviously offers great opportunities. Uh, one of the things we did in our campaign, which I think was fairly revolutionary, is, you know, I go all over the country and I speak to meetings like this. And what we did is we had the capability of live streaming the meeting. So normally, in olden times, you give a speech to 2,000 people, 2,000 people hear it. With, with live streaming, several hundred thousand people are watching it. So people are hearing, unfiltered by anybody, a straight speech about the reality of America. Hundreds of thousands of people see it. That is revolutionary. So I think we have to figure out ways to use social media in as positive a way as we can. Yeah, that's interesting. There's one of your earlier books, you talked about how C-SPAN was a really good uh, thing for you because they, they started showing uh, proceedings in Congress and right. people got to see your speeches unfiltered. Yes. There's that thing Noam Chomsky says, isn't there, where he says um, concision uh, is uh, the enemy of being able to say uh, anything complex. So, so one of the... the the methods the media has is they, they cut you down to sound bites. Right. And, and now you seem to have got beyond that. That's right. In other words, if I ask you, you know, tell me what you think about climate change. Oh, by the way, you've got five seconds to give me an answer. Right. You, can't, you can't do it. And that's right. C-SPAN, to its credit, allows people to speak. And live streaming does it. So we use live streaming a lot now. We used it during the campaign. It's a powerful tool. Um, you talk in the, the book about how we're getting this increasing concentration of wealth, and we're getting, the, we're getting the, what we call billionaires now are some of the richest people to have ever lived, and it's, it's unprecedented uh, in a way. And we can see, like with industrial action in Britain at the moment, we see uh, people who are striking now to maintain the service that they provide. So we have a nurses' strike here, and a big part of the, the, uh, the motivation behind the nurses' strike was these people want to keep the NHS. You know, they're, they're like, this service is collapsing. It's not purely for their own paying conditions. They're actually doing this to try and keep the society running. Is this, a, is this like a new stage of capitalism? Well, I think what is a new stage uh, is concentration of ownership and the incredible power. Let me give you one example on that, and I'll get back to your point. I have been involved, my office has been involved in the last year in about a dozen strikes all over the country. And what we found is two things. Number one, this is the truth. Invariably, the companies that the workers were striking were making huge profits. And their CEOs made millions of dollars a year. And then, despite that, they wanted to cut the health care benefits their workers received. They wanted to give minimal wage increases. 
They were doing that because they have the ability to do it. I'll give you one extreme example some of you may be familiar with when I've been involved in this. In the United States, rail workers have zero paid sick leave. So you're out on 20 below zero weather, right? You're out in the rain. You cannot get paid to get sick. If you get sick, you can't take a paid day off. We're in the process of pushing them, and they are going to change it because of public opinion. Meanwhile, these companies make billions of dollars every single year. It's power. I got the power. You don't. Go to hell. I don't give a damn what you want. You can't do anything about it. You don't like it? Get out of here. We'll replace you with somebody else. I remember a strike in the Los Angeles area, California, and it was mostly Latino women who were working in a bakery. They made cakes. Their demands were minimal. And the son of a bitch who owned the company, who was a billionaire, fought them and fought them. They finally got what they wanted. But fought them and fought them. It was pennies. And essentially what it was about is power. I don't want it. I will give it to you if I want to, and I don't want to give it to you. We're dealing right now with Starbucks. A lot of people in the United States, 200 Starbucks uh, uh, coffee shops have organized unions. The guy who owns it is a guy named Howard Schultz, a multi-billionaire, and he is fighting illegally the union effort because he wants to run the company completely and does not want to cede any of the power to workers. That's the reality of what we're having. And I think what COVID did, Frank, and this is an important piece, so many people died and were made sick. A lot of people in America, I suspect here as well, you tell me, are beginning to rethink things, you know? And they're quitting their jobs. They're saying, you know what? I need a life. And people yeah. are beginning to look at not just the paycheck. They are looking at the paycheck, but beyond. They said, I want work that is meaningful to me. I got one life to live. I don't yeah. want to be a wage slave for my whole life. Yeah. That's actually a phenomenon here that's been referred to as the great resignation. Where people have just started right. handing in their notice. Yes. Yeah. Is that taking place here as well? Yeah, yeah, to some extent. And they're trying to, um, you know, they're trying to scare people back into the workplace and so on. British people are, are often shocked to find out things like how Americans work and how few sick days they get. And, right. and that didn't change during COVID? It did. Well, we passed, during COVID, we passed a very significant piece of legislation, a $1.9 trillion bill that, that I helped write as chairman of the budget committee. And it, it, it did it help people in many, many ways. But I'll give you an example, and people should be shocked about what goes on in America. Uh, in the United States, uh, you have a baby. A woman has a baby. Do you know how much guaranteed paid family and medical leave she has? None. So what you see is women, lower-income, working-class women, giving birth, and if they're single moms, they may have to go back to work a week or two weeks later in order to get the income they need to take care of their families. That's how bad it is. Um, we are, of course, the only major country not to guarantee health care uh, to all people as well. So in many ways, we trail as a nation, despite our wealth, behind many other countries. You talk in the book about, about uh, economic rights, and that's, that's a term most people here won't have heard. Could you unpack that a bit? For economic? People? Economic rights as, are, as human rights? Yeah, okay. In 19, 
44, toward the end of World War II, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was one of the great presidents in the history of the United States, uh, he gave what we call a State of the Union speech. Presidents give this every year. And because it was in the middle of the war, not a whole lot of attention was paid to it. But this is what he said, and I'm paraphrasing it, and we deal with it at some length in the book. And it was a very profound statement in 1944. So what he said, he said, look, is, as Americans, we're very proud of our democracy and of our political rights and of our Constitution. You have the right to vote, you have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, all kinds of freedoms that the Bill of Rights guarantees you. And so that's great. But then he raised this question, and I'm paraphrasing, and I hope everybody thinks about it. Are you really free if you do not have economic rights as well? So in the extreme case, what does freedom mean if somebody is sleeping out on the streets of Los Angeles? And there are 30,000 people sleeping out on the streets of Los Angeles. What does freedom mean if you are working 50 or 60 hours a week trying to provide for your family because you're earning starvation wages? What does freedom mean if in America you get sick and you go bankrupt, which a half a million people do, because of medically related bills? What does freedom mean if you are stuck in your job and you stay in that job that you hate because you get health care on the job? Are you really free? Are you free if your life expectancy in your community is going down? We don't talk about it much. I do in the book. And I, I don't know the story here in the UK. I should, but I don't. But even before COVID, COVID was a terrible, had a terrible impact, obviously, on life expectancy. We lost over a million people. But even before that, life expectancy in the United States was in decline. Do you know why? What doctors referred to in describing it was diseases of despair. Is that something, is that a phrase you're familiar with? I'm from Scotland. There's a lot of diseases of despair. <laughs> <laughs> but what they did, and we had a hearing on this, uh, and the hearing was called Poverty as a Death Sentence. What does that mean? You know what that means? I want you all to think about it. You know, people say, well, you know, too bad you're poor. I got a big house. You got a small house. Your car is falling apart. You're poor. You know, my car works. That's the difference between us. That ain't the difference. In America, the life, and again, I don't know what it is here. It's different because of your health care system, by the way. But in America... The life expectancy of rich people is equivalent to what it is around the rest of the world. Poor people and working class people live 10 years less than rich people. In other words, can you imagine? Just sit back and think about it. I mean, everybody, kind of the goal of life is to live long and happy and productive lives. Is that right? That's what we all want to do. And yet, if you are poor and working class in America you are going to unnecessarily die 10 years earlier than somebody else owe a lot of money. Now, why is that? One of the reasons is, is health care. And again, unlike your country, uh, we have millions of people who cannot access doctors. But above and beyond that, there's something else. And that is that the stress 
of being poor is incredibly destructive to human health. Can you imagine what it is like to go to work every week, not earn enough money to take care of your family, worry about what happens if you know, the rent goes up, what happens if the car breaks down, all of that stuff. What does it do to you? Week after week after week, you become a nervous wreck, and that has an impact on your physiology. And that's why people, stress is a killer. And working class and low-income people are stressed out. What the diseases of despair is about is doctors say when people feel hopeless and when there's nothing much good taking place in their lives, they turn to drugs as a quick high, they become addicted to drugs, become addicted to alcohol, become alcoholic, and in too many cases are, are, are turning to suicide as a way out. So, you know, those are realities facing tens of millions of working families. It is avoidable. We can make changes that are necessary. Just one thing, and again, the contrast between your healthcare system and ours is important. If we could bring a healthcare system in America that guarantees healthcare to all people, it would relieve an incredible burden that is now on the shoulders of millions of people. And we're working hard to try to do that. There's a lot of um, cynicism and apathy in politics. Um, and you always feel that that kind of benefits elites, that benefits people on the right, because they're like, we don't particularly care if people go out and vote. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the people who are most affected by apathy and cynicism tend to be people who would vote for yourself. You know, are, are you conscious of that? And um, what, what can we do about that? I am absolutely, you're absolutely right. You know, if you, the billionaire class loves that cynicism, right? Hey, don't vote, doesn't matter anyhow. You think you could change something? Don't be ridiculous. I mean, they don't say it that way, but that's the implication. Uh, that's out there. You all, by the way, you're all helpless. You can't do anything. Forget about it. I got the power. You got nothing. So don't even bother. You want to vote? So vote for some jerk. Doesn't matter. We control them too. All right? And that is what people implicitly understand. And they are giving up. Uh, and in America, we're making some progress on this. We have historically had very low voter turnouts. Uh, and young people especially, for a variety of reasons, including what you're talking about, did not vote in high numbers. And I'm very proud that in the last you know, six, seven years, we have seen a real uptick in voter turnout among young people. They are catching on that they have power, uh, and they're beginning, beginning to utilize it. And they are seeing their power reflected, not widely known, but right now, we have more young progressives, often uh, young women and men of color, in the United States Congress than at any time in the modern history of this country. And we are making real progress in electing some great people. And by the way, do you know what the response of the establishment to that? They're going to spend tens of millions of dollars trying to defeat those candidates, precisely because these young candidates, and I work with many of them, help get some of them elected. They are giving hope to young people. They are speaking the language of young people. They are saying to young people, let's stand together, we can do it. And what the big money interests are doing, 
which is so disgusting to me. They are targeting these people, and they're going to spend millions trying to defeat them, precisely to say, you can't do it. There's nothing you can do. We take you on. We got the money. You got nothing. To say something, I suppose, quite cynical, another thing that I, I think is happening is that as you see those, those young people coming through who do offer hope, there's, there's going to be a new push on voter suppression, isn't there? I mean, in Britain, we see they've now brought in voter ID. That's been rolled out at the moment. Brought in. They've brought in voter ID, uh, which we didn't have previously in Britain, that you have to show photographic ID oh, I see. to vote, yep, yep, yep. Um, which is apparently there's currently 2 million people in Britain who don't have appropriate uh, ID, which is going to disenfranchise a lot of people. Do you, do you worry about you know, voter rights going forward? Of course. Look, this is part of... Now, there are different forces at play, so it's not one group doing everything. You've got Republicans who understand that people of color vote very strongly Democratic. Republicans get that. And that young people vote very strongly uh, anti-Republican. All right. So if you've got young people and people of color who are going to vote against you, what's your response? Do you try to figure out why is it that they're not responding to our message? Let's sit down. Let's talk about it. How do we communicate better? How do we change our policies? No. What they do is, okay, people of color and young people are voting against us. How do we make it harder for them to vote? And that's going on all over this country. So in terms of voter ID, we say, well, voter ID, what's the problem? Well, you know what? Not everybody has a driver's license. And if you're poor, you know, you, 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 maybe you move around a lot and you don't even have an address that's the, where you can come up with the uh, identification. So all of this is a very, very concerted, well-thought-out attack on trying to make it harder uh, for people to vote. Absolutely. I think there's a, a problem in Britain anyway where a lot of our politics on both left and right has a kind of sentimental style. There's a lot of nostalgia to it. Um, and there's also a lot of, I guess, hero worshipping of leaders and, and, and leaders defining movements and parties and, and political moments. Do, do, you, do you think that's useful or do you think it would be useful to move beyond that kind of thing or work against that kind of thing? Yeah, I am not much into personality politics. All right. Um, I believe in grassroots activism. Uh, in the book, um, I mention a person that most of you probably have not heard of. Uh, Frank, I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, his name is Eugene V. Debs. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, yeah, Eugene Debs. Yeah. And Debs, in fact, was one of the great Americans of the 20th century. He was a railroad worker who then became head and helped organize the American Railway Union back, roughly speaking, in the 19, early 1900s. And he became uh, the leader of the Socialist Party at that point, which was a party that was growing uh, pretty strong. Uh, and he ran for president in uh, five times, in 1904, 1908, 1912, 1916. Uh, and in fact, he, had, he was a tremendously courageous man. Uh, and what he said is he said he was almost like a Christ-like figure. And he was the kind of guy who would give you the shirt off his back. People loved him. They really did. And he said, though, you know, don't look at me as the Moses. If you want me to lead you into the promised land, then somebody else is going to lead you in the other direction. You've got to do it yourself. 
you got to have strong grassroots democratic forces uh, at play. And by the way, uh, Debs was opposed to America's entry into World War I. And he got arrested. And a rather old guy, he was sent to jail for three years. And a remarkable story, it's to me just very moving. He's in jail in a federal penitentiary. And he was such a humane person that the prisoners there loved him. And when he walked out of prison, he was pardoned by a Republican president. When he walked out, the prisoners started clanging their tin glasses on the, on the cells to say thank you to him. Imagine that. And tears were coming down his eyes. Um, but Debs was a very brave man, was a great union leader, uh, and raised political consciousness uh, to an extraordinary degree. But at that point in World War I, the Socialist Party was broken uh, by the federal government. Uh, their offices were raided, their uh, publications were censored, and so forth. Uh, but I would hope that people read a little bit about a very great American who a lot of Americans have not heard of, let alone people around the world, Eugene V. Debs. Do you find um, the climate crisis difficult to connect with people on? I just speak from like, my own experience of having talked about it at shows. I can feel audiences shut down. And I had a bit in my last show that I had to drop that was all about how the climate crisis is going to affect the global south first and it's going to hit the poorest countries first and the poorest countries hardest. I could see people in the audience who were kind of relieved. You know? <laughs> like, I think... I think there is part of people here anyway that just wants to go, let's not talk about that, let's not think about that. How do we get around that? Well, you know, this last point that you made, look, these are really hard times. We've got to be honest about it. You know, this pandemic has really taken its toll. Um, and it's not only the death and the illness, it's the isolation, I don't know about here, but in the U.S., schools were closed down. Kids not only weren't going to school academically and falling behind, they weren't socializing. They weren't with their friends. And no one denies that in America right now, we have a severe mental health crisis. That is widely understood. I was at a school. I get around the state of Vermont, my state schools, and it's young, you know, and I do meetings like this, and kids ask questions. This young girl gets up and, you know, and I talked about drugs and addiction and all that stuff. And uh, the girl gets up and says, look, we live under enormous stress. You know, everyone's talking about our generation having to save the planet. You know, they are worried about climate change, as they should be. What kind of world are they going to grow up in? Nobody knows. Uh, and, and to change subjects, one of the things that has so outraged me about Putin's invasion of Ukraine is not only the destruction in Ukraine and the loss of tens of thousands of Russian lives is if there was ever a moment in world history when countries have got to get together, climate change is not going to be solved by the United Kingdom, not going to be solved by China, not going to be solved by the United States. You need all countries coming together to transform our energy systems. And if we don't do that, that is a very bleak future that we're looking at. So to answer your, you know, your, your, your question, I, I think 
many people are saying, my God, and this young girl in school is saying, we got to deal with climate. We got to, you know, we, 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 you know, we can't even talk to our friends because of the pandemic. We got worried about getting into college. Tremendous pressure on the young people. But, you know, these are tough times, and, and we are going to have to figure out a way to bring China and Russia and the United States into a, a coalition which addresses climate. But we're not going to be leaving our kids much of a planet. You talk a lot over your career about the lives of working people. That's what you're really interested in. How do you, how do you think work should change? You know, we've had this um, report this week. They did a report on the four-day week. It was a great success. Um, we've got all kinds of technological innovations now that are making people more productive, and yet their work isn't changing. Uh, what, what do you see as the future of work? What should it be? Well, frankly, I mean, that's, that's the huge issue that we have to deal with. I think... You know, what we have not, you know, I say in the United States, we've got to think big, not small. We've got to examine everything that we take for granted. People go to work. Okay, I'm going to work. Well, that's 40 hours of your life in work. Do you enjoy the work? Do you feel productive? Is it something you come home proud? Are you excited to go to work? Well, for many people, not the case. And second of all, uh, I have little doubt that artificial intelligence and robotics and other new technologies are going to transform our work lives in ways that we cannot imagine. I mean, millions and millions of jobs that people in the UK and the United States are doing right now, they ain't going to be there. So the issue is who makes the decisions about the impact of that technology? Who makes those decisions? Everything left alone, the people who make those decisions will be the people who own the technology and the CEOs. So a CEO comes along and says, well, you know, Frankie, I got a machine to replace you. Thanks for your 30 years of effort. Have a nice day, and here's a wristwatch uh, as a thank you. All right? Or do we say, hey, here's the good news, man. Instead of having to work 40 hours a week, we got a machine who makes you more productive. You're only working 20 hours a week, and you're earning the same pay. All right. So technology unto itself, in my view, in many cases, not all, is not bad. But it is how it is used. And we have got to make sure that it is used to benefit the working class of this country and not just the corporate world. And one of the things that we should be thinking about is lowering the work week. And you refer to a study that was done here. It was done here in the UK. And a whole lot of companies... Uh, experimented with a 30, I think it was a 30-hour work week. And almost all of the companies and the workers said, hey, it worked well. People felt that their lives were improving. They felt better about their work. They were more productive. And the company said, hey, we're doing fine. We like the idea. Companies said that. Workers said that. Well, we should be thinking about applying that principle all across the economy. Yeah. What's often galling as well is a lot of the technology is developed with public money, you know, and, and then it's the, the profits are essentially privatized. That's exactly right. You, you seem to just have boundless optimism, even though you discuss things that, are, things that are often sound quite negative. You do always come up on the sunny side. What, what gives you your optimism? Where does it come from? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I am very fortunate and, and kind of in a fairly unique position in the sense that 
you know, when you run for president of the United States or a United States senator, you get around the country. I've had the pleasure and the honor of being in every state in the United States and in Puerto Rico. And you meet zillions of people. I mean, I cannot tell you how many public meetings I've had like this all over America. And you hear people and you see people and you develop a sense that by and large, most people are decent human beings. And for me, who really share a commonality of interest with other human beings. So you go to people. Should we make sure that in America, everybody who has a job earns a living wage? Hey, Bernie, that's a no-brainer. Of course we should. Should we have affordable housing, build the housing that we need to make sure that people are not paying 50% of their limited incomes for housing? Of course, Bernie, we should. You know, Should we make sure that when our kids are in childcare that they get the best care that they can and we pay those workers good wages, that we pay teachers good salaries, that we have a strong education system? Of course we should. Should we deal with climate change? Of course we should. So you find out that when you talk to people, I'm not saying there aren't differences. In my country, the issue of abortion is a very contentious issue. Most people, like myself, are pro-choice, believe that women should make that decision, not the government. But there is... You know, there is a strong minority that disagrees. An issue that we deal with that you don't really is the issue of guns. We have a gun culture. Uh, and you got people walking around with semi-automatic military weapons. Most people believe that we should have sane gun control in America. Not everybody. All right? And there are very powerful forces against that. But on the broad economic issues, there is a lot more in common uh, than I think people perceive. And our job is to understand people can have different views. But on a lot of these economic issues, I am optimistic that we can bring people together. And I'll tell you something else, and this is just, you know, something that was personal to me. Uh, when I ran for president, we would do a lot of rallies, sometimes two or three rallies a day. And I'll never forget being uh, on, on a farm in agricultural country in California. And we're on this beautiful farm, and I think we're doing a rally five or six o'clock in the evening. Sun is going down. I look out there. There are thousands of people, mostly, and this is agricultural area. A lot of Latinos uh, work in agriculture. There's a lot of uh, Latinos, they're Mexican-Americans. Uh, you had a lot of African-Americans. You had a lot of whites as well, and mostly young people. And you look out, and you see these beautiful young people, black and white and Latino, coming together, demanding transformational change in our society. And when you see something like that with your own eyes, and you experience it, you know what? It's hard not to have a sense of optimism. That's a nice note to go to the floor on, I think. Have we got a first one out there? I'm going to start with a question from the live stream to kick us off while the ushers find someone from upstairs and we'll alternate. So the first question is, how do we stop young people aging out of socialism into conservatism? Well, I think 
the first response is to take young people seriously and not ignore their justified concerns and demands. All over the world, in my country, in your country, all over the world, young people are leading the effort in terms of transforming our energy systems and trying to save the planet from climate change. All over the world, young people are fighting against racism and sexism and homophobia. So I think the first thing that an older generation can do is say, thank you very much. You are right. Open the political process to bring young people in. Empower them. Start implementing, involving them. Start implementing some of the de le legitimate demands that they are making. And we're making a little bit of progress in that regard in the United States. Because as I mentioned, we now have many young, often people of color, in the Congress who are fighting a fight that resonates with young people all over America. But open the damn political doors. Don't keep young people out. Don't tell them they got to work, you know, for 30 years before they have power. Open that door, welcome them in, listen to them, and start implementing some of the concerns that they have. We found anyone up top? You've spoken about um, building a vision for the future, and I wondered if you have any thoughts on how you build that vision when you have election cycles that are four or five years. How do you build that momentum and that forward-thinking, long-term political vision? Well, it's, you know, and I have, as a United States senator, you know, it's exactly the difficulty that, that I have, what I have to balance. I am paid by the people of Vermont to deliver tomorrow. That's what my job is, and I do that. But what I also understand is you've got to be thinking into the future. And as we talked about earlier, as Frankie pointed out, very often what our vision is is, is shaped by people who want to maintain the status quo, who basically tell us, look, this is the way things are. I own it. You don't. I have power. You don't. I have money. You don't. And that's the way it's always going to be. So what we need to do is you cannot turn your backs on the needs of today. That's my job. I'm paid to do that. And I do it. But it is also important to sit around and to say, okay, in the year 2023, when new technology is being developed, is that technology, for example, improving the lives of ordinary people? We should be, as a society, seeing ordinary people have a better standard of living. Are we changing the nature of the work relationship? I'm the boss, you're the worker. Are we beginning to talk about why workers themselves cannot own and work the means of production? Are we talking about a media which is not controlled by the few, but a media which allows for public discussion of the broad issues facing our people? Are we talking about having pharmaceutical industries develop the life-saving drugs that we need, not worrying about how many billions of dollars they can make every single year by manipulating the system? And I want to say, in terms of optimism, in certain respects, in social issues, this world, my country, your country, have come a long way 
in the last number of decades. When I was the mayor of the city of Burlington from 1981 to 1989, when I first became mayor, do you know how many police officers were women? Zero. When I was in the United States Senate, when it was 16 years ago or whatever, there was one woman who was a member of the United States Senate out of 100 people. Same thing in the House of Representatives. That has radically changed. The idea that in America, when I was growing up, if somebody said to me when I was a kid, oh, by the way, in your lifetime, there will be an African-American president of the United States, nobody would have believed that it happened. The idea that we would have something like gay marriage would have been absolutely unthinkable. So the good news is that on social issues, women's rights, gay rights, African-American rights, and minority rights, we have made some significant progress. We've got more to do. Where we have not made progress, because it is a threat to the ruling class, is on economic rights. And that, in my view, is what we have got to start focusing on. That means creating a tax system which demands the wealthy start paying their fair share of taxes. It means making it easier for workers to join unions. It means raising the minimum wage to a living wage. It means, as I've discussed, giving workers more power over the jobs that they do. And that's you know, just my views. Other people have different views. But I think now is the time, especially with the revolution in technology that we're seeing, is absolutely, and this is not rhetoric, this is what we've got to do, is demand an economy that works for everybody. You don't want people struggling when other people have hundreds of billions of dollars. That's immoral. That's bad economics. We've got to stand up and fight for an economy, a political system that works for all, not just a few. Maybe get someone down here, if we've got a mic going around. Hi. Um, would you say that um, there's any truth to sort of the idea that right-wing and sort of Steve Bannon Trumpists are taking over local government and sort of changing the way that Americans vote? Sorry, I didn't quite get that. She's, um, she's asking about uh, the idea that uh, right-wing people are taking over uh, local institutions within uh, America and uh, trying to control the, the next uh, general election vote. Yeah, well, that's... That's not a, that's that's correct. Uh, you have uh, I mean that's just the fact. Um, you have uh, many of you have noticed it probably with uh, uh, surprise. You have school boards in America who are locally elected who are banning books. Uh, you have people who think that it is offensive uh, to discuss America's very sordid history in terms of slavery or what we did to the Native American people. Uh, and we don't want to talk about that. Those books should be banned. Uh, books on sexuality should be banned. Um, and you have a very active uh, grassroots right-wing movement. And some of them are what we call election deniers who are running for secretary of state. People who actually control the election system in a given state. Fortunately, in the last election, and I think one of the good pieces of news is in the last election, uh, a lot of these people were defeated. And, and one of the conclusions 
of the last election is the American people are getting very nervous about the attacks on democracy on January 6th, on people who refuse to acknowledge that Trump lost the election, people who are busy trying to make it harder for people to vote. So while that is taking place, there, is, there are millions of Americans who are saying, wait a second, you know, we are a democracy. Uh, Biden won the election. All people have the right to vote. But those are very serious threats to American democracy. Lots of quite downbeat questions so far. <laughs> Should we try another one up top? Over in the corner. Ah. Uh, that corner. Okay. So, essentially, there, there's a common held belief in America that every poor person is just somebody on the fringes about to become rich. And essentially, uh, what would you say to people that start to become Come middle class and they start to get the 50 to 100 grand bracket range and they start to believe that it's in their interest to become right wing conservative in your case republican and, and start to feed into greed rather than larger social better outcomes I guess in, in this sort of scenario do you think um, well, what, do, what do you think you should be saying to these people to help them understand that they are just as true of victims of wealth inequality as your person working for 20 grand or 30 grand as a nurse in the NHS or anybody in a blue-collar working-class scenario? Well, that's a very good uh, point. What the right wing does, they're not stupid. And what they try to do is to say, look, uh, what our job is is to give tax breaks to the rich, um, to cut taxes for the wealthy, and to do that, we have to cut back on social programs. But you know what? That ain't very popular. Uh, recently, uh, as you may have noticed, and Biden, I think, did a good job on this, he called the Republicans out. Many of these Republicans were talking about cutting what we call Social Security, which is the uh, government program for the elderly. Uh, and, and we have so many desperately uh, struggling elderly people. It would have been a disaster. Cutting back on Medicare, which is our health care program for seniors. And uh, there was so much uproar about Republicans doing that that they basically retreated. And they said, no, 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 no. You know, despite what they had said three weeks ago. No, no, we don't want to cut back on Social Security and Medicare. So how do they succeed? How, when you got nothing to say, do you win elections? And they do. What you do is the time-honored demagoguery that we have seen all over the world. You take the anger that people are feeling and you take it away from the ruling class and you put it on to immigrants. That's a popular group to be hating all over the world, right? Or you take it to gay people or take it to people of color or take it to Muslims, you pick it, or Jews, or wherever it may be. You take a group of people, and you say, that's the group. You are, you're working hard, and they're living off your hard work. They're lazy. They're this and they're that. You play one group off after another. So these people who are making $70,000, $80,000, they work really hard. And what 
the right wing says to them is your tax dollars are going to support lazy people. What we have got to tell those people is, in fact, that billionaires in America have a lower effective tax rate than they do. All right? That, in fact, they do better when we all do better. And that we have a tax system which protects them but goes after the people who really have the money. That's one thing that you could do. Violence is largely seen as, well, monopolized by the state. And often we think of violence as sort of outside of the political spectrum, somewhere that, you know, we shouldn't even be touching. Um, how do you conceive of the, the use of violence as we sort of career towards sort of planetary destruction? Stephen Donzinger recently talked about ecocide, sorry. As a, as a crime against humanity uh, in The Guardian. It's quite an interesting article. Um, to what point do we get to uh, acting sort of in self-defense um, against, like, you know, sort of large corporate entities that are engaging in activities that are sort of, you know, pushing us towards global destruction? Well, how, do, how do we see violence? Is it something somewhere outside of what can we can I, act Can I just on? ask, are you one of my guests? <laughs> <laughs> I think we I get the so. idea. I think we get the idea. Thanks. Well, it's the. Um... I look at it, um, you know, a little bit differently. It goes without saying that we have got to act boldly and as quickly as we possibly can to transform our energy system. Uh, but I'm not sure, but that violence would be counterproductive in that process. Uh, I think what we have need to do, I mean, there are no easy answers, but I think what we need to do is hold the fossil fuel industry accountable. I think that their actions have been criminal because they have known what their product is producing. And what we need is a mass movement which basically stops the production of fossil fuel as quickly as possible in this country and all over the world. I think that's what we got to do. I don't think that violence is going to make that day come earlier. We've got time for last one quickly. I'm getting that out of time light there. Could we squeeze in one more? Yes, I, I've been given the time. Um, yeah, I'd like to thank you as well, Senator, to come to the UK. Your, your messages are inspiring. Um, I think the, the faults you identify in our economy and society are undoubtedly accurate, um, and the solutions you've presented um, are inspiring. Um, but the right wing, whether it be conservatives uh, in the UK or Republicans in the US, seem determined to fight a kind of culture war as the most convincing electoral weapon, if you like. Um, and my question is, and it's not something that I'd like to waste time on, I guess, but it's inevitable that we have to deal with the question of how does progressive politics or progressive candidates deal with the, the kind of culture war around um, trans rights, gay rights, race politics, and so on. Um, it seems inevitable in the UK and the US. So a question of how we deal with that. Well, you know, I... You know, I think there cannot be, in the United States or any place else, kind of compromise on basic human rights. 
And I think the rights of all people, whether they're transgender or anybody else, uh, have got to be defended. Discrimination, racism, sexism is simply not acceptable. But I think it is not good enough to simply defend those rights. We got to get on the offensive as well. We got to get out of that. We have to say, look, human rights are sacred. We're not going to, everybody, we're going to end bigotry of all forms. But now let's talk about bigotry and attacks on working people in general. All right? So I think that what we need to do, and, and I think in America, it works. I mean, you know, there are people who are, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they may be racist or sexist, and that's a reality. But I think our job is not only to defend the rights of minorities, defend women's rights, but also to go on a strong attack against the corporate elite and the 1% to bring people together. And at the end of the day, I think that agenda trumps, if I may use that word, <laughs> the agenda uh, on the attacks against uh, minority groups. But what we have got to do, and again, in this respect, the establishment uh, will not be on our side. Many in the American establishment are very strongly pro-women's rights, pro-gay rights, pro-transgender rights. That's fine. It doesn't hurt them. They are not for the rights of working families. They are not about to cede power. So our job, I think, is to mobilize people, and I think we are in a position to do that if we are smart. Because what we believe, what the progressive agenda is about, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise, is a popular agenda. It is, in fact, supported by the vast majority of the people. So my answer is we defend human rights always. But we go on the counteroffensive. We take on corporate interests, and we defend workers' rights. Thanks for coming out, everybody. Can we hear one time from the center? Yeah. Great job, this episode starred Bernie Sanders and Frankie Boyle. It was produced by Esme Bright, Sam Algranti, Nicole Wong and myself. And our editor is John Doughty. Find out who else is appearing live on stage at How To Academy on our website. You can follow us on all the usual social networks too. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>